You're against um, alcohol. You know, you're not really for anything. <laughs> you're just against everything else that everybody else does, right? That's a misconception about holiness. Another one is that it's formulaic. It's a formula that you follow. Really, it comes down to you need to be like me. You need to talk like me, act like me, dress like me, you know, do what I do. Um, no individuality. Just be a robot, right? And that's a misconception about what holiness is. Another one. You've got to be always at church. Every time the doors are open, I've got to be at church, omnipresence at church. I need to be teaching and serving and cleaning and organizing and filling in the blank and, and creating the blank and, and cleaning the blank and, and getting the blank ready for somebody else because I'm always needing to be there. That's a misconception about what holiness is. Um, just a few more. <laughs> stoic. It's stoic. Holiness means stoic. You know, I, I feel nothing. Nothing affects my joy, right? <laughs> I am joyful in holiness. I never get sad, mad, glad, bad, right? I never do any of that stuff. I never smile or frown. I never worry. I exist on, a, on another plane, right, above it all. Um, and, and that's a misconception about what holiness looks like. Here's a big one, judgmental, right? Holiness is being judgmental. Everybody else is below me, worse than me, less than me. I'm better, you know, I probably haven't told you this, but I'm God's favorite, <laughs> right? You can do no right, I can do no wrong. That's what holiness is, right? No, that's a misconception about what holiness is. Finally, it's a, a position or a rank, right? I've, I've achieved the rank of holiness. I started out baby Christian. I, you know, I matured a little bit. I got to be, you know, uh, more mature in my faith. I had childlike faith, and then I got to be mature in my faith. And now I have achieved the rank. I've been promoted to the rank of holy. <laughs> I've worked hard. I've arrived. Now I'm part of the in-club, and all of us in the in-club of holy can look down our noses at everybody else who's not holy. Right? So that's a miscon- those are some misconceptions about what holiness is. And there may be some shreds of truth in some of those, some, some elements of truth in that list, but nothing really could be further from the truth about what holiness really looks like than those misconceptions. Holiness is not ignorance. It's not unimportant. It's not boring or negative or formulaic or robotic. It's not earned by always being at church. It's not stoic or judgmental or unachieved rank. It's not any of that. In fact, holiness before God is the opposite of every bit of that. But our enemy and our flesh work really hard together to convince us that that's what holiness is. And if that's what it is, I want no part of that. Listen, if that's what holiness is, God wants no part of that either. That's not what he's called us to. That's not what he's commanded us to be when he tells us to be holy. When, when God commands us to be holy as his children, it's not time for us to roll our eyes and think, oh, He's talking to somebody else, <laughs> right? God is talking to you, brother, when he says, be holy. He's talking to you, sister. He says, as I am holy, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. God calls us to be holy, but it doesn't look like any of that other stuff. If you're called by some other God, or if you're called by some kind of worldly philosophy, um, you're called into all that other stuff of, of holiness. You're called into those works and that that. Um, works-based righteousness system of trying to earn holiness and, and be those other things. But if you're called by God to salvation, you're called into holiness that looks nothing like any of those misconceptions about holiness. So what does it look like? 
Well, Peter's been building up to that command of be holy in chapter 1. So far, it's looked like praising God for our salvation and being joyful, lasting joy in our salvation. There's, there's nothing boring about that if it's true of us. I know for some people, you know, when you start talking about Jesus, you talk about the cross, you talk about um, redemption and forgiveness of sins, and, you know, the yawns start coming, the, the eyes start rolling back in the back of, of people's heads, and, oh, this, this is going to be boring. When we haven't grasped what this is, right? When we haven't understood what, what salvation is, when you understand what Jesus did and how it, what he paid to save you from your sins and the consequences, it, it'll bring an excitement, a joy. It'll bring a, an energy in singing praises to God and in praying praises to God and living and speaking praises to God. It's not going to bore you. It's not going to be dull. It's an inexpressible joy, and it's more valuable than anything we've ever seen before or, or known before, as we've looked at. And it springs forth love and thankfulness that motivates us to do all that God has called us to do and to be, and that is the grand command of holiness. That's what we've seen so far in chapter 1. The grand command of holiness also includes, from verses 17 to 21, fearing God, and then our verses this morning, it includes loving one another. Now, wait a minute, what does fearing God have to do with holiness? Verses 17 to 21, how does that point back to, to holiness? That's what Peter says here. He says, conduct yourselves in the fear of God, right? What does that mean? What Peter says there in those verses, he says, look at what God has done. <laughs> look, at, look at his omnipotence, his intense and all overpowering strength that it took, verse 18, to ransom you the strength that it took in His grace to pay for our deliverance from our sins. The, the, the almighty, all-powerful God, He ransomed us when we were hopeless and helpless in our sin. He saved us. He delivered us. In His transcendence, in verses 18 and 19, ransoming us not with the most precious and valuable things we can ever have on this earth because they're perishable. He says, look at what God did to ransom us with something so much more precious. The cost of the, the precious blood of Jesus. The Jesus' own blood, the lamb without blemish or spot. Look what he did to save us, to ransom us. See his everlasting, perfect omnipotence, omnipotence omniscience, if I can say the word right, all-knowingness. He knew Christ before the foundation of the world, yet he gave him for us to save us in his death, verse 21. And as we observed this morning and proclaimed in the Lord's Supper, yet Notice, Peter says, his matchless, unsurpassed glory which he shares with his son after raising him from the dead. Peter says, who could do all of that? Who, who, in, who could do all of those things to save you and I? Only an exalted, powerful, amazing, stunning God. So you, you recognize all of that about God and then you live in fear of him because of his power, his majesty, his grace, how, how amazing he is. You don't fear the world. You don't fear its passing pleasures or its passing judgments. You fear God in, in a continual awe and reverence and respect that's due to him because of how powerless we were to save ourselves, but how astounding God is to save us. If we would recognize that, Peter says, if we would internalize all that, it would produce a healthy, deserved fear of God that would change the way we would live to be holy, to live a holy life. That's how fearing God points back to the grand command to be holy. But what about loving one another? 
How does that point back to holiness, our passage this morning? Love one another is a main part of what it means to be holy. It's a main part. Love one another is actually another grand command that includes other commands underneath it. But see, we tend to think of holiness, again, as looking down our noses at other people. We, we see holiness almost as like an opposite of love, right? There's truth, there's righteousness, and then there's love, right? And we see them as opposite things. We think of holiness as maybe believing we're better than everybody else or, or whatever, but all of that was the opposite of what holiness is. Holiness requires love. It's not the same thing as love. It's not defined solely by love, but there is no holiness without love. And there's no holiness, there's no true love without holiness either. Holiness begins in the heart with a love of Jesus and a fear of God, and it also begins in the heart with love for other believers. See, holiness is not cold, it's not stiff, it's not standoffish, distant, aloof, unapproachable, unsociable, detached. Holiness is a true kind of love for God and for others. Rather than judgmental or stoic, holiness requires love. Love and holiness go hand in hand, starting with God himself. You have in your notes 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, and it's a quote from the Old Testament and, and many places in the Bible. You remember he said, be holy for I am holy. That's God speaking. So in that blank, God is holy. That's not news to us, I know, but it's set right near the next verse from 1 John 4, 8 that says that God is love. God is holy and God is love. That's not a contradiction. <laughs> He's not sometimes one and sometimes the other. He's both all the time. And it's not a mistake. And it's not impossible. See, from the perspective of our life on earth, from in God's commands, you can legitimately so closely connect love with holiness that you can answer the question of, how do I love God with how holy is my life? And you can answer the question of how holy is my life by answering the question, how do I love my God? And here's what we're going to see in our passage this morning where it might get a little more tricky for us. We can also answer the question of how holy am I living by how do I love my brothers and sisters in Christ? Peter is making this connection here in 1 Peter. Be holy. How? Love one another. What does it mean when we love one another? Well, it means that we are holy. We're growing in our holiness. You can't be one without the other. Peter says that here. If you'll turn back just a few pages to 1 Thessalonians 3, I want to remind you of a passage that we saw several months ago in 1 Thessalonians as we worked our way through it in chapter 3, verse, starting in verse 11. As he closes out chapter 3, Paul writes that he says, I want to be brought back to you. Verse 12 and, this is a prayer that Paul's making, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you. Why? Why, Paul? Why would, to what end? <laughs> so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness. Love accomplishes holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So, we see that there is no holiness where there is no love. Love brings about holiness. Peter says it. Paul says it. There are many other places. But if we're being cold to others, if we're not caring about other people, we can't say that we are being holy or that we're growing in 
our holiness. And we need to stop thinking about holiness as all of those things that we talked about at the beginning. Because sometimes those can creep in into our mind. All of that was the very opposite of holiness. So understand from 1 Peter chapter 1, God commands us to be holy. And what that looks like is praise to God based on the salvation he's brought about in us. Holiness looks like rejoicing in God because of the salvation that he has brought about in us. Because of the unsurpassed value of that salvation. And holiness looks like living in the fear of God because of the wonderful, mind-blowing salvation that he has brought about in us. And if all of that is true, what do you think this command of loving one another is going to be based on? This amazing salvation that he has brought about in us. And not just salvation in general, but salvation for us. If we look back at chapter 1, look at verse 4. God has set up a perfect inheritance kept in heaven for who? For you. Look at verse 10. The prophets prophesied about this salvation that was to be whose? yours. Verse 20, Jesus was made manifest in the last times for whose sake? For yours, for you. Verse 25, this word is the good news that was preached to you. Every bit of this is based on the salvation, the gospel that God has brought about, delivered, purchased, and reserved for you. Every bit of this. Our response then, the only proper response is holiness. It's what he's called us to. It's what He saved us to. It's what He will deliver us to in the future. That's why I asked that question when we were getting started. One thing that we can look forward to when we get to go home to be with with the Lord in glory is no more sin. We'll be completely made holy. But holiness is love for God and love for others. And the kind of love called for here is based on the salvation that He's brought about for us. So now, with that understanding, we can dig into the command. And we can dig into these verses. Now, the command itself is to love, and it's found at the end of verse 22. Now, there are some words that come before it and some words that come after it. They all point back to that command. So, we need to focus on the command. We need to understand it. And then we need to look at the other pieces and parts, the information that comes before and after it. And then we'll unpack it and understand it. See, what Peter kind of does here is what many recipes do. Have you ever... Have you ever followed a recipe, started a recipe for something, you start going down the list in order, and then you read where it says, preheat the oven, right? And then you start mixing all the ingredients, and then it says, now pour all the mixed ingredients into the prepared pan. You go, oh, I didn't prepare the pan yet, right? So, so there was some preliminary work that, that was mentioned before and after the mixing of all the ingredients. That's what Peter does here. He says in verse 22, having purified your souls, that's the preparatory step before this command to love one another, which means that you can't love one another properly without a purified soul. He says then in verse 23, since you have been born again, that's also another preparatory step before we can love one another. We've got to be born again. We've got to have our heart purified. If those two things are true, then we can mix the ingredients and put it in, and we can obey this command of love to be holy. But following a recipe, have you ever also run across an ingredient that has a bunch of other steps that you're supposed to take? That's why they say, read the ingredient list. Have you ever, have you ever uh, started a recipe that says, two cups of flour divided, sifted? And uh, you didn't read that part. You, you took the two cups of flour and you, th- you threw it into the bowl. 
And then later on it says, now, now mix the one and a half cups of flour in there, and then at the end you're supposed to sprinkle the rest on top. You go, oh, <laughs> right? The, the, uh, the extra steps, right? The other things you're supposed to do. You know, when you throw the eggs into the batter, you don't just throw the eggs in there. You beat them first and then put them in there, right? Those are preparatory steps. Those are things you're supposed to do first. So that, that's what Peter is doing here. He's, he's giving us the recipe for holiness. We've seen some of the other ingredients, but now this one is love. And as we've said, there's no holiness without love. It's like making raisin bread without the raisins. And some of you are like, I don't want that anyway. So, okay, it's like making chocolate chip cookies without the chocolate chips, right? Um, and so, so he, love has some other steps, some other information that we need to know about, that we need to be prepared for before we can start just doing love to try to be holy. So the first thing we need to look at is the command itself, then the other information that's not extra, but preparatory. So let's look at the command itself, love one another. Now, as we know, the world offers a really terrible imitation of biblical, godly love. And sometimes we can fall for the the fleshly, the worldly version of love because it comes easy, right? It's cheap. It's easy. It's more comfortable. We're used to using it. it. It's comfortable because it appeals to us. But Peter says that the genuine ingredient in holiness is a special, otherworldly kind of love, so make sure you use the right one. Well, how do you tell? This love that is commanded is love, it's earnest, and it's from a pure heart. Now, what does all that mean? Well, first, the word love is the word agape. Now, many of us are familiar with this word because we've heard this preacher or that teacher talk about you know, almost like a hierarchy of types of love in the Greek language. There's the eros love, which is romantic and, and base. There's the uh, storge love, which is a little bit better. And then there's the phileo love, which is brotherly love, and it's a little bit better. And then on top of it all is the perfect God love, agape. And I don't mean to burst anybody's bubble. (laughs) Those can be some helpful guides when we're studying the Scriptures. But those last two in particular, phileo and agape, carry a semantic range of meanings that can overlap and even stray pretty far outside of our nice, tidy, little packaged understandings of what they mean. We always say that context is the key to understanding a word's meaning. So, for example, when Jesus says in Luke 6.32, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. The word that Jesus uses is agape, for the love that sinners have for sinners. Now, it can't mean a perfect, self-sacrificing, godly, perfect love when sinners love sinners in that way. You remember in John 3, when Jesus is Speaking to Nicodemus in verse 19, he says, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. The word Jesus uses is that word agape. It's unthinkable that agape is a perfect kind of love that the world has for darkness. So we've got to be careful that we don't pigeonhole words into neat, tidy little packages when it's not always helpful for us to understand what it means. What about the word phileo? Is it a lesser kind of love than agape? Well, in John chapter 5, verse 20, God the Father loves phileo, the Son, Jesus. Now, that can't possibly mean that the Father loves the Son with a lesser kind of love. Jesus loves and loved many people. In John eleven thirteen. Jesus phileo loved Lazarus. John sixteen twenty seven. the Father phileo loves the disciples, 
because the disciples phileo love Jesus. So they can overlap. And the two of them can refer to good, right, and true love. As a matter of fact, here in 1 Peter, the reason that we went through that is because look at verse 22. Peter introduces this agape love with phileo love. He says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, that's phileo love, agape love one another. Now, we're going to unpack the verse, but here the two loves are set side by side. And we might say that they highlight different aspects of the love that we're commanded to have for one another, but we cannot say that, well, one of them's lesser than the other, right? Or one's higher or better than the other. What really sets apart this phileo and agape working together love is the context. The context here for brotherly love is sincere. That word sincere means unhypocritical. There's no pretense. It's pure. It's genuine. It's not for show. It's not the kind of love that wants to get noticed. It's not the kind of love that wants to get thanked or, or appreciated or rewarded or returned. It's the kind of love that is purely interested in the well-being of the other, regardless of what happens to me. That's the sincere brotherly love. Next is the word earnestly in agape love. And that kind of seems weak to us, like earnestly. Okay, <laughs> you know, what, what does that look like? That word earnest is the word that refers to how Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane when his sweat became as great, great drops of blood. That's what earnestly means. It means going all out. It's the farthest that you can take something. That's how our love is described. You know, we've heard moderation in all things. Hogwash. <laughs> in our love for one another, our love is to be extended as far as we can. It, it, it's not a take it or leave it laid back, easy going, how's it going, what's up, that's great, see you next Sunday kind of love. It's not the kind of love that we half-heartedly try to do. It's energy-draining and it's self-emptying kind of love. But it starts, Peter says, from a heart that is pure. The ESV says a pure heart. It's, it's been cleansed. It's been purified so that our heart is guiltless and innocent. It's not like the Pharisee's cup that's been washed on the outside, but inside is full of greed and self-indulgence. You remember what Jesus said. It's the kind of love that's demonstrated by God and that when we were still sinners, his enemies, dead, he died for us. Can you imagine loving the people in the chairs next to you so much that if they turned around and smacked you, hit you, spit on you, beat you, and killed you, you loved them to the end? That's the kind of love Peter is talking about. It's, it's unimaginable kind of love. It, it, it's the kind of love that we're commanded to have for one another. That is the love ingredient in holiness. Is not the love that we're used to in the world. But what could possibly drive us to this kind of love? What could ever bring me to love you this way, or you to love me this way, or you to love one another in this way? We're commanded to love others outside the walls as well, but the, the context here is focused on other believers. And, and uh, I had something else, but we're going to skip that for now. <laughs> this is the commandment from God. This commandment to love one another that starts here in the church is an impossible standard of holiness. It's impossible. We can't do this. One commentator put it this way, I will never obey the truth of God apart from the power, grace, and assistance of the Spirit. God's got to do this in us, right? He's got to change us to be able to do this. 
But that doesn't mean that we're off the hook for this command, right? When the Spirit of God dwells within us, we are now suddenly going to be able to obey this command. Whether we, want, whether we knew we were able to or not. Because we're going to want to obey this command. We're, we're suddenly going to be able, because we're going to be enabled and empowered to do it by God. God himself working in us, but more strongly, God commands us to do it. This is not going to be an option for us. This is what God tells us to do. And it's not going to be suddenly because all Christians deserve it. It's not going to be because, well, suddenly, everybody's going to know who I am and love me back and be nice to me, right, and notice me. It's not predicated on anything, no, no return of investment. You know, I'm going to love this person, and they're going to love me back, and it's just going to be great. Remember, we're commanded to love one another even if we get nothing in return. Now, Lord willing, if we're all loving one another, you'll be loved <laughs> by, by other people. But this love does not demand that that happen. This kind of love doesn't request that it happen. It doesn't even wonder why it doesn't happen. This kind of love that comes from God just loves. And it doesn't matter what happens back to me. It's a holy love, again, an otherworldly, supernatural, impossible kind of love that I can't manufacture in, my, in myself. I knew a man who loved his wife even after she divorced him. He loved her even when she accused him of abusing their kids. To the police, he was arrested he was tried in court, and the, the charges were dropped. It was a, a ridiculous charge that she had made just to try to keep him from his kids. He loved her still. He loved her year after year after year after their divorce. He loved her till the day he died without ever having her say one kind word back to him or do anything for him or to him other than be spiteful and hateful. How, how is that possible? There are two parts to this ingredient in the recipe of holiness. And we need to recognize these truths first because they enable and teach us about this kind of love. Number one in our notes, love, because you have, been, because you have purified your soul. Because you have purified your soul, verse 22 says, having purified your souls, love one another. The reason we cannot love with perfect love is because we're not perfect. We're not pure ourselves. So how could we love like this? It's only possible when your heart has been made pure, when it has been purified. Peter uses the word for soul, psyche, and he's talking about the very essence of you, who you are. You're cleansed from within. Your very person and essence has been purified. He's not talking ceremonially, but a, a total transforming kind of purity and cleanness. So now... The love that we are to have from within, rather than being tainted like a, a source of a river that's radioactive, <laughs> that's poisonous, he says it's been cleansed now, the source has been, to be made as it wasn't before. How did we do that? How did we cleanse our souls? How did we purify our souls this way? Peter says we did that by obedience to the truth. We obeyed the truth. And the word obey there means listening and then obeying. The word is actually just hyper-listening. You listened, and you listened so much that you did it, hearing and doing. So what is the truth that we heard and we acted on? The truth is, you can't be holy. You can't love the way that you're told to love, the way that you're called to love. You can't be righteous before God. You can't love or rejoice or praise or be holy or anything good in God's eyes because you're a sinner. 
The truth of God's law says you must be perfect from start to finish with no sin nature, no effects of sin, not doing anything wrong, not leaving anything out. You've got to be perfect. But since you can't do that, the truth says you must recognize your sinfulness before God, his perfect wrath that's coming on you because of that sinfulness, unless you confess that to him, turn away from it in repentance from sin and self, turn away from that, turn to God in Christ Jesus, the Son of God who lived, died, and rose again to save you. That's what the truth says. You believe in him with faith and repentance so that all of your hope, all of your trust and confidence are in Jesus Christ. But since you don't have faith yourself and you can't repent on your own, the truth says that God gives that to you when you need it. This is what the truth says, and this is the truth that we're hearing and believing. And then when he gives you that faith to believe and you repent, you turn away from your sins and the gift that he's given you of repentance, then you praise him and you rejoice in that salvation. And this is what the truth tells us. His immeasurable kindness, his mercy, his grace toward us, that's how we obey the truth. We obey the truth by quit trying to obey the truth ourselves and recognizing that Christ has already done it. He purifies us. He makes us clean. When we turn from sin, we turn to him in faith. When we hold on to him instead of ourselves. And all of that is what God did in the truth. And we obeyed that. He saves us, as we said before, to holiness. That's what he saves us to. And holiness is expressed in love. In fact, our very obedience to the truth was for, Peter says, a sincere brotherly love. So what he says is just as we were called into holiness... We are called into, we are commanded to be loving our brothers and sisters near us. And it bears repeating, we are not called into being love. See, God doesn't entice people to come in and say, come on in to this group of people here who exist solely to meet your every request and need and desire and love you. He doesn't say that. He doesn't entice us that way. He invites us. We are welcomed into a family of people that we are now enabled, commanded, and empowered to love the way that he loved us. It's, it's a sincere love, an earnest love, a brotherly, sacrificial love from a pure heart because we've been transformed from within. That's the only way that we could love the way that he tells us to love because he has purified our hearts. Because we have had our hearts purified by obeying, again, by quit trying to obey. And then as he works in us, then he brings about the supernatural foreign love, which is holiness, which is obeying as he empowers us. So that's the first thing we need to understand about this kind of love, that it is something that we can't do. It's something that God has done when he purified our soul. Number two in our notes, love because you have been born again by the word of God. The Word of God, verses 23 to 25. He says, since you have been born again through the Word of God. Now, if you were to turn back to verses 18 to 19, you know that we are born again. We're ransomed. We're saved by Jesus' precious blood. He was the payment that delivered us. Amen? He was made manifest for us. He lived. He died. He was raised from the dead so that our faith and hope are in God, Peter says. Now, our love is from God as well. Faith, hope, and love all next to each other, all hearing again, but the greatest of these is love. Here again, the idea of born again from the original is a one-time act. You have been made born again, regenerated. It's a one-time thing that happened in the past when you believed, and it has effects that are still present 
now. And yes, God has done great things for us. Remember the, what we looked at. God did all of that for us, but it's not meant to be kept just for ourselves. Faith is not complacent. Hope is not complacent. Love is not complacent. They are actions that spur us on and enable and bring about holiness. We were ransomed by Christ's sacrifice of his precious blood. But how does that make its way to us? He did that 2,000 years ago. How, how did it make it to these believers who were 800 miles away? How does it make it to us 2,000 years later? How does, it, how does he bring that to us? He says, in the seed of the word of God. See, Peter must have remembered Mark chapter 4 when Jesus told the parable of the soils. And the sower sowed the seed of the word of God in the hearts of people in their soils. And those with the purified soil, the good soil, without rocks or weeds, received the word and it grew in fruitfulness and in abundance. That seed of the word here in 1 Peter is described with four words. And it is the word of God that God has used to cause us to be born again. That's how he brought us the salvation that Jesus earned. It, it is his word that enables us to love and be holy and be saved. So therefore, that means that this cannot be an ordinary book, can it? This can't not be ordinary. By the way, here comes another, hopefully not bubble buster for people. <laughs> the word of God is not ordinary. It's not just poetry or history or made by man. It comes from God and is therefore extraordinary. But just as we can sometimes pigeonhole the words phileo and agape, we can do the same thing with logos and rhema. The logos and the rhema distinction of the word of God. Some have taught that the rhema is the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking, either through events or people or inner feelings or impressions. They take those as a word from God, a rhema word. Even a portion of Scripture can be called a rhema word. And a distinction is made between that and the logos, the entirety of the Scriptures, the Word of God altogether, the written word. But we're going to see here in our passage, again, the two words are used here synonymously. They're used right next to each other. Now, it's true that rhema can refer to just a portion of Scripture, a certain part of the logos, but the two overlap in meaning a lot. Here, they both refer to the Word of God. That's what happens here. Verse 23, we are born again not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding logos, Word of God. Verse 24, the, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the rhema Word of God, of the Lord remains forever. And this rhema word in verse 25 is the good news that was preached to you. The two words are parallel, again, in our context. But whether you're speaking of God's word in logos, the entirety, or the rhema, the part, or the two of them together, it is the extraordinariness of this word that enables us to love like we've never understood or known before. So the four words that, that Peter uses, the four descriptions are in our notes. A, the word of God is imperishable, verse 23. Imperishable, you remember the inheritance from verse 4 that we have in heaven? It's imperishable. Remember the blood of Christ in verse 18? It's contrasted with what is perishable. The same word is used here of the, the word of God, the seed in us that is not perishable but is imperishable. Peter uses this word four times. <laughs> Our inheritance, heaven, never perishable. Jesus' blood, never perishable. The word of God never perishable. It doesn't decay, deteriorate, decline. Remember, it never passes away. That's the extraordinary word of God that saves us and enables us to love impossibly. God's word. B, 
in our notes. Verse 23, the word of God is living. This is the living word of God. To say that the word of God is living means that it has a power. It has authority to act that's inherent in itself as alive. It is living and acting and it brings conviction of sin, Hebrews 4 says. You've got these verses in your notes. We won't go through all of them, but the word of God brings regeneration. causes us to be born again. The word of God gives faith, Romans 10. It accomplishes God's purposes, Isaiah 55 says, including your holiness, your sanctification. That's what Jesus prayed for in John 17, 17. That's what the word of God does. The word is full of spirit and life, Jesus says, John 6. The word lives within us, believers, 1 John 2 says. It is how we live our life, not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It is living because it proceeds forth from the living God. Is the word dead to you? Is the Bible just a book that you try to remember to bring to church on Sundays? It may very well be that you have not become born again, that you have not been born again, regenerated, saved by God if his word is boring and dull and dead. If that's you, come to the Lord. Come talk to us so that we can lead you to the Lord after the service. It may just be that you've lost your first love, or it may just be that you need help understanding. That's why on Sunday mornings we preach this way, word by word, phrase by phrase, sentence by sentence, paragraph by paragraph. That's why we dig in so much, because every word of God is what we live on. God's word is not just an old book, and we don't worship this book, but we worship the God who gave us this book, the living God who gave us this living word. This is why it's so extraordinary. This is why it enables us to live and to love impossibly in a way we could not do on our own. C, next in verses 23 to 25, the word of God is abiding. It's abiding. What does abiding mean? Well, it's explained in verses 24 to 25a. It means to exist and to live, but it means to remain there, to stay that way in that state. It's permanent. It never changes. You remember Balaam in Numbers 23, the, pa- the pagan idolater that God used to speak truth. He was brought to curse Israel, and he said, I'm only going to say what God says, and God says Israel's going to be blessed, right? Numbers 23, 19, Balaam says, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? <laughs> no, God speaks and does What he says, he does, and he will do. His word abides because God abides. God never changes, so his word never changes. This is the abiding word. Peter quotes Isaiah 40 here, and it's another place where the word of God is contrasted with all that we see. There is nothing here that's lasting. All of the glory of man, all of the the flesh that's so beautiful, that's so enticing to our eyes, will pass away. It's not fulfilling. It's not worthy of glory. Who would respect the dignity and majesty of a dandelion? (laughs) The glory of this earth doesn't last even as long as a dandelion, (laughs) does it? But but the world and the flesh and the glory of all this is, is so appealing. It's so attractive. But it fades. It doesn't have lasting glory. It dries up. It withers. It becomes parched and scorched. The flower falls, it comes to an end, it's here and it's gone. That's how fast our life is. That's how fast the glory of flesh is. Nothing we could ever place our faith and hope 
in here will ever last. But God's word, Peter says, remains forever. The word forever is into the eons, into the ages. It goes and goes and keeps going. It's imperishable, it's living, it's abiding. And when we are born again by this living and abiding, imperishable word of God, because God abides forever, his word abides forever, and we abide forever, and our love abides forever for one another. We're called into this new life to an impossible love for others through this word. But it's a call, and it's a power to obey that call that is only found in this extraordinary word. Finally, D, the word of God is preached to you. Verse 25, it's preached to you. In case we missed it, Peter gives us a one-sentence paragraph to point us to this. Students, you've got to be excited about this. You can point your teachers to this and say, look, there is such a thing as a one-sentence paragraph, right? (laughs) It doesn't need five sentences. No, this time, this is emphatically stated in the Greek. It stands on its own in a one-sentence paragraph. This is the word, the good news that was preached to you. It was preached, it was proclaimed to you, and it still is. It was this word that was preached and saved you with the good news within it. There's nothing else, no fancy arguments, no speech, no convincing anything that is sufficient and authoritative and powerful like this word of God is. I praise God that this word is where the power is. That it's not me, my words, my abilities, but only God's word that saves and that changes God's people. That's why we study so carefully every word. Now, for those who love the Word of God, this is exciting truth, and we're drawing this to a close here. <laughs> those who love the Word of God, this is exciting. This is, this is happy. This is joy. This is praiseworthy, right? But it cannot end there with excitement and happiness and joy. It is trust in this Word that saves us, but it is the power of this Word working in us to change us the power of the Word of God that commands us and empowers us to love one another, to be holy, to act on it, to do this. No theology, no learning, no belief, no doctrine is any good if it stops at just filling our minds with stuff. We've got to apply this teaching, this theology, this doctrine when it's faithful to the Word of God. That's when it changes us from within to without. Causes us to be born again, to holiness, to love one another. And so we love in order to be holy, and we learn to love to be holy because it's God's work in us. So our application this morning, what do we take from here? We love, and we need to love because of our God-given holiness. Love because of your God-given holiness. He purified your soul. His powerful, enduring word caused you to be born again. This is what he does in us. He brings this about. But we love because he has made us holy. And next, we need to be holy because of our God-given love. You know, even if nobody ever loves us back, God has loved us beyond what we'd ever deserved or could ever imagine. And he's given us love and he just refills us with love if it's never returned by humanity at all. It's not because of what we get out of it, not whether people deserve it. We love because God's loved us, and he's making us holy, making us to love other people. Finally, be holy in love as God loves you in his word. How how does God love you in his word? It's never changing. It's never fading. It's imperishable. It's living. It's active. It's always alive. 
That's how we're called to love. This kind of love is not just possible. It's not just a potential. God says, this is what your love is to be. It's commanded. The only way that such a strange group of people like us could love one another is because of what God has done. He is an amazing God. He's saved us. He's brought this about, and he's bringing it about in us. Let's pray together. Father, you are the holy God, and you are a God who is love. But you're not loving. You're not occasionally full of love. Lord, you are always love. And God, you are always holy. God, I pray that as we read what you have said to us, as we read what Christ has done for us, Lord, that we would grow in that kind of love. Lord, that we would love you above all, that we would love the people around us. Lord, this is not a new message. It's a message that gets repeated throughout your word. But Lord, it's repeated so often because we forget it so often. God, I pray that you would bring it to our mind. You would humble us before you. Lord, that you would teach us to love ourselves less and others more in Christ most. That that would grow us in holiness to be pleasing to you and glorifying to you. We ask this in Jesus' precious and holy, loving name. Amen.